Did you not know that I've had my eye on you these last two weeks? Well, I've only been working here for five days. They said it'd been great whatever instrument I chose. But on guitar, nobody can touch me. Except this gypsy in France. But mostly I'm untouchable. Quantity affects quality. Says who? Karl Marx. Oh, so now we're talking economics. Sex is economic. I wanted to know who was really sharing the bed of my ex-husband. Who knew what I would find there? How could I be sure you were not going to hurt me? After all, I have thoughts of killing you. I will not be destroyed by this neurotic woman. From Tuscaloosa, Alabama, this is Aspect Radio. I'm Corey Kraft. And I am Ben Flanagan. And Corey, it's always appointment movie viewing when either Edgar Wright or Woody Allen has a new film in theaters. And when each or both of those movies are accessible to us here in Alabama, then we're even more thrilled. And I know that it was difficult for both of us, you especially, because the Sidewalk Film Festival fell on the weekend that these two movies came to Alabama, Birmingham specifically, for both of them. The World's End came to Tuscaloosa, which is where I saw it. I know it took you a little while to get around to both of them after having seen how many movies at the Sidewalk Film Festival. I think I saw about seven this year. Maybe eight. And before we move on, are there any of note that you want to mention from the festival? Yeah, yeah. The independent comedy drama Short Term 12 is every bit as good as you may have heard. Coming out of this year's South by Southwest Festival, I think it was the audience favorite. I think it might have won their dramatic award as well. Released in New York and L.A. recently to considerable critical acclaim and had the privilege of seeing it at Sidewalk. It is indeed one of the best films of 2013 so far. I doubt very much it will ever expand into this area beyond something like the Bam Art House film series, but if you have the chance to see it, it's a wonderful, humanistic, very funny, very moving drama about life at a foster home for at-risk teenagers and the employees of that home, one of which is uh, played by Brie Larson in a, in a sort of breakout leading performance. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful movie and absolutely the highlight of the festival for me this year. Well, that's interesting. I was there for just a little while. I didn't get to see as much as you did. I know that you were on assignment yeah. there. So can people read your recaps? In yeah, here? I've got a recap up at my blog at the Tuscaloosa News website, movies.blogs.tuscaloosanews.com. So everybody should check that out. But as for the movies that did not play at the festival that we really wanted to see, before I made my way to Sidewalk, I did drive to Birmingham and went to the Patton Creek Rave, and I caught Woody Allen's latest film, Blue Jasmine, which I think is still currently playing mm-hmm. in Birmingham. A couple places. Unfortunately, it's not in Tuscaloosa, but it's a quick ride, especially if you're as excited to see these Woody Allen movies in theaters as we are. We're always fortunate to see these in theaters. We're lucky that we're, we're at a point now where they're not playing just in limited release. Fans of Woody Allen seem to span generations, it seems, because... You have folks who grew up watching his movies in the 1970s and 80s and were super excited about them, and they were pretty successful nationwide, especially in New York and Los Angeles metropolitan areas. But with films like Midnight in Paris and Vicky Cristina Barcelona, and to run with love to some extent, I guess, it seems Woody Allen still has plenty of life out there in theaters, and people 
want to see his films still and there's a demand to see his movies th- these films that are still playing even in Tuscaloosa at the Bama Art House they bring his movies and those theaters fill up and people just love to experience them and I know that something for me personally every single Woody Allen movie shares one quality and it's one just exquisite quality that they all have going for them until it's over and it's at the very beginning and you have this very simple traditional black and white credit sequence where you just have a black screen, white titles, and you have names like Woody Allen's, obviously, a cast that's listed in alphabetical order. You have names like Juliet Taylor and Santo Laquasto and the many cinematographers that he's worked with. And then you have Letty Aronson and Rollins and Joffe, these names that we're so used to seeing. And that's just one of the greatest feelings as one of these jazz songs or classic opera or just classical pieces plays after this short sometimes 30 second credit sequence plays and it's wonderful every single time even with the movies that I'm not fond of like the anything else's or whatever works out there where I thought well these movies aren't very great but going into it the anticipation completely builds during those short credit sequences so I have to ask you once this credit sequence was over and the movie played out finally the latest movie from Woody Allen did you follow it into that good or bad Woody Allen movie category to resist hyperbole at least initially I filed it into the good category but to give into it a little bit I think this is a masterpiece Blue Jasmine I think it might be my favorite of his films, and what feels like the most complete vision that he's delivered in a dramatic sense in well over a decade, possibly since something like Crimes and Misdemeanors. I fell head over heels for this movie in a way that I didn't really for something like Midnight in Paris, which I really enjoyed, I think is is a wonderful little movie, for something like Vicky Cristina Barcelona, which I think infamously I like a lot more than you do, for something like even Sweet and Lowdown, which I think is a wonderful film as well, with, like this film, a, a sterling central performance. But this movie is the complete package from Woody Allen. It's sharply written, it's inventively structured, particularly for a guy who has sort of laid off of his more uh, inventive cinematic tricks in the last 15 years or so. This is a guy who very famously inverts cinematic structure in a lot of his earlier films and plays off of these things in uh, films like, well, everything you wanted to know about sex is a sort of anthology film. You've got more surrealist sort of things like deconstructing Harry and his segment in New York stories. And then movies with extensive use of flashbacks. I think Another Woman is a good example of that. Alice has a lot of the magical realism moments. And Annie Hall, of course, is famously chopped up uh, into all sorts of bits. Sort of a free association style of filmmaking there. But Blue Jasmine sort of reverts to that while staying heavily structured in a sort of flashback back to present structure. Just when you need to learn something new about the central character Jasmine, played by Kate Blanchett in perhaps, well, easily the best performance I've seen in a film this year so far, and one of the all-time great performances in a Woody Allen movie, indisputably. Add to that his standard sharp writing with uh, wonderful one-line jokes now and then even in, in what ends up being a fairly serious movie. There's enough humor to lighten the mood and a very unexpectedly terrific cast from all sorts of names that you would not necessarily expect to see in a Woody Allen film. People like Sally Hawkins reteaming with Woody Allen after first teaming up with him in Cassandra's Dream and people like Alec Baldwin who have been in a couple of his movies now but also folks like Andrew Dice Clay and 
and Louis C.K. These are all people who deliver the goods in this movie and manage somehow to not be overshadowed by this towering, emotionally raw, raw nerve of a central performance from Kate Blanchett. It's just unbelievable work. And a movie, quite frankly, as much as I love Woody Allen and as much as I've loved a lot of his recent films, I certainly never expected to just go this crazy for one of his movies. Not since, well, I don't know. Yeah, I'm actually 100% with you on this, and I have been pretty vocal about how much I love movies like Cassandra's Dream, and I'm with everybody else in terms of how much they love Match Point, and I certainly like Midnight in Paris, and I think that the last two, anyway, are the ones that people would sort of refer to as his best in recent years, and rightfully so. But I think this is probably the most cohesive, the tightest, the most well-rounded Woody Allen movie that we've gotten since maybe Sweet and Low Down, which was way back in 1999. And it may be even better than that. You're right. I think it might be. You know, I I had mentioned the credits experience and how that's good every single time. You know, and all sort of feels like it's right in the world as you're sitting there gearing up for another Woody Allen movie. And sometimes it doesn't turn out very good. But with Blue Jasmine... For me, as a lifelong Woody Allen fan, it felt like all was right in the world again once the credits were over. It felt like one of those 80s and even early 90s Woody Allen movies where he was just completely in his groove as a filmmaker and as a writer, and he was experimenting Mm -hmm. as a filmmaker. I think that this in Blue Jasmine is almost like no other movie he's ever made, and I think that he's taking stylistic and thematic chances that he's never taken before. Mm -hmm. And I would refer specifically to the ending of this movie. I've never seen anything like that in a Woody Allen movie. It feels contemporary in in ways that his films often don't you know Mm -hmm. his critics sometimes levy that he's he's stuck in some sort of fantasy world of the nouveau riche and and of the the bourgeoisie where they talk about art and they talk about politics and they have these long ponderous discussions that people don't really have but this feels authentic and it feels of the times, particularly considering its its subject matter, in ways that his movies haven't lately. Well, I think he completely subverts that. I think he turns it on its head because yeah. you have these characters who could be those sort of Woody Allen archetype characters who are empty and just sort of spouting off this Woody Allen grammar that we're used to. Right. But I think that when they have those qualities, he really fills them in this time. Yeah. And what what is a big strength in this movie is that Woody Allen is able to focus on one person. Right. And we've seen in recent years that he's relied on ensembles and sort of doling out several storylines and letting so many A-list and other notable movie stars and actors sort of take care of it and just sort of apply their own brand to Woody Allen's brand. And this time he has one person, and that has been such a strength of his over the course of his filmography. And to bring someone with like Kate Blanchett, the caliber of actress like Kate Blanchett, it is one of the most seamless marriages in movies that I've seen in a long time. And it's one of those sort of dream picks, I think, that Woody yeah. Allen fans have when you think, well, what actress would go well with him? And this is a guy who writes and directs women like few others do and is still able to do that. He still manages to give women these very strong roles as we've seen in recent years where someone like Penelope Cruz has won an Oscar in a movie he made back in, what, 2008? Yeah. So he's still in that realm, and I think he's still at the top of his game. And I think Kate Blanchett is at the top of her game as well and is giving arguably her best performance I think it is. in her career. I absolutely think it is. And that's saying something. Yeah. Blue Moon was a song that was playing. You know the song, Blue Moon. Yeah, but I... 
I always wanted to do something with my life. You know, I had energy. I didn't just shop and lunch and go to matinees. You know, I ran charities for poor people. Ran, you know, raised money for museums and schools. You know, with wealth comes responsibilities. I wasn't just some mindless consumer like so many of my so-called friends. Though I won't say I dislike buying pretty clothes. Tip big, boys. Tip big because you get good service and they count on tips. You know, someday, when you come into great wealth, you must remember to be generous. Mom said you used to be okay, but you got crazy. Yeah, and then you talk to yourself. Well... I mean, I was just floored by it, by how measured she is in her, not only her more neurotic episodes, but how she can turn on a dime to sort of turn back on the Jasmine persona, as it were, going from this vapid sort of vain socialite to, but like I said, a raw nerve of a person popping Valium and barely holding it all together as we sort of switch from the present to the past and, and really get a glimpse at who this person is, who her relationships have suffered with and, and, and where she's coming from, so that when you get to the ending and there is a revelation that frankly is perfectly set up and yet I didn't see coming at all. It's just a testament to Alan's sharp writing and, and to Blanchett's just captivating performance that just totally knocks it out of the park, totally sells it from frame one to the amazing ending. And you talked about the structure of the movie, too, and I mentioned experimentation this late in Woody Allen's uh -huh. career. I think that this is one of his most interestingly formatted movies yeah. in that he utilizes flashbacks so effectively. Anytime he flashes back, it means something, yep. and it, it's done seamlessly, and the transitions are always noticeable, but they're always extremely effective and are, are used extremely well from a storytelling standpoint and tell you everything you need to know about this Jasmine character. And where I think folks like Naomi Watts and Rada Mitchell might have failed in movies like Melinda Melinda and You'll Meet a Tall Dark Stranger, which are kind of those just, again, these archetypal female characters and these these neurotic headcase characters. I felt like those were so thinly designed and realized in, instead, in Blue Jasmine and with the Jasmine character, she has so many nuances and idiosyncrasies and just so many finely tuned elements to this character. And also, you apply the performance to it and you just have a jackpot yeah. of not only a performance, but just a, a totally original character. And nearly 40 movies into his career, that is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. It's an unbelievable achievement. And I, I'm totally with you, this being one of his best in a long time, if not his best since his greatest ever. And I think you can file it into that category among his best ever. But you talked about the supporting performances. I think Andrew Dice Clay is excellent yeah. here. Unexpectedly, maybe unless you're just a diehard fan of this guy, you didn't expect him to be a key contributor to a Woody Allen drama. Yeah. And his part, while he's really funny in the movie, it's a dramatic role. Mm -hmm. And the same goes for Sally Hawkins, who's great. And I think that she drives home so many of the, the fantastic points he's trying to make about social class and what it really means to be happy where Jasmine's character really just sort of fails to understand what that means. Yeah. And you, again, you have Louis C.K. in a small part. I think Alec Baldwin is excellent yeah. here. And of note, too, is Bobby Cannavale. I think who, his was my favorite performance he's, in the movie. He's fantastic. Yeah. He's great. And this guy has been good recently in the films of Todd McCarthy, and also he's in, he, he was just recently on Boardwalk Empire mm -hmm. as Chip Rossetti. I know people are familiar with that. 
but he's great. He, he's another one of these guys, and we've seen similar characters and. Woody Allen's movies, but I think that he just brings the sort of electricity to the performance where you have this character who's just so raw. You talk about another raw nerve of a character. I think that he's able to sort of pluck at that and get under the skin of the Jasmine character like no others are sort of able to in the movie, other than herself. And his is a character that could have gone totally awry with the sort of cartoonish, exaggerated look that he has. But Cannavale just sort of brings the humanity to it that, again, brings nuance to a character that could have been disastrous in the hands of a lesser actor. I think he's he gives a terrific performance. He and Sally Hawkins play really well off each other, and the two of them play excellently off of Kate Blanchett. I mean, it's just, it's a finely tuned ensemble. I mean, everybody just works so well. Yeah. And, and you've and got guys like Michael Stolbart. Oh, my God. He is fantastic. He's so gross. Yeah, big time. And but if he's going to cast the next male lead in one of his movies, I want it to be Stuhlbarg. Yeah. That guy fits right in. Yep. He gets it. And yeah, again, thematically, you know, you're talking, there, there's a lot at play here mm-hmm. in terms of appreciating what you've got, letting yourself be happy under any circumstances, appreciating family. He's firing on all sorts of cylinders here. And instead of getting lost in it and sort of throwing it away like he has in the past several years and where he has been able to sort of mine a fine movie and an enjoyable experience, this is one of those that feels heavy Mm -hmm. and feels like it deserves revisiting and analysis. And I just came away from it just sort of, yeah, floored by it and just thinking, wow, this is the guy that gave me X. This is the guy that gave me Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the guy that gave me Hannah and her sisters. It made me think about those and not so much, again, those sort of empty little bonbons, I think, that he's called it in the past. I agree. I mean, it has the weight of a great American tragedy. Something like, and this has been a comparison a lot of critics have made, of something like A Streetcar Named Desire, with Blanchett's character as a neo-Blanche Dubois. Of course, they don't fall into quite the same pitfalls, those two characters, but it's a distinctly modern tragedy in some ways, a, a tragedy that could only have been written in this age of recession. And, and to have Alan, a filmmaker nearing 78 right? Something like that. He's getting up there. Make something that feels so so vibrant and so contemporary is, is indeed stunning for someone's 40th-odd movie. And that's amazing that somebody his age is still this in touch. Yeah. And I think that a criticism that people have leveled at this is that it is out of touch socially and from a class standpoint, and he puts a lot of blame on each class, and he puts a lot of blame on the Jasmine character, where in, in, in my opinion, and people might read this a little differently, I'm sure that there are Jasmine apologists out there, uh-huh. but she brings everything onto herself that happens in this movie. And sure, there are circumstances that contributed to it. She comes from a broken home. As we learn in this family, she and her sister are adopted. She ends up renaming herself. So the deck is stacked against her to some extent. But you see her sister, who is dealt the same hand early in her life, and she is not someone who forces the issue. She simply lives her life. And if things don't go as planned, she again, she doesn't force them to go her way. She just is happy where she is, even though her life has been difficult. And that's not the case with Jasmine at all. Right. And Blanchett just, yeah, she blew me away. And she's somebody who also, I mean, you could call, I, I don't know if we can call it late in her career. This is probably I, maybe the peak mm-hmm. of her career. I don't know. But somebody who could phone it in at this point, somebody who's won an Oscar and somebody who can do whatever she wants. Again, this is somebody who could just work with Woody Allen for the sake of working with Woody Allen. She does not do that. 
She puts everything into it, and I think that that's admirable for an actress at this point in her career. And I think it's entirely possible that as a result, she could get a second Oscar. Yeah, hope so. And I know that it's still early, but again, we refer to Penelope Cruz, whose movie mm-hmm. came out in August as well, and she won the Oscar. She rode the momentum. So hopefully, unless somebody just knocks it out of the park and blows us away later in the year, I think that she's the one to beat. If I see a better performance this year, I'll be very impressed. Yeah, well, very impressed. Blue Jasmine is actually playing at the Bama Art House, I believe, next week mm-hmm. on September 10th at the September 17th. Blue Jasmine will play at the Bama Art House at the Bama Theater in Tuscaloosa at 7.30 p.m. It's currently playing in Birmingham at Select Theaters, so check out Fandango or other services and find out and go see this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Ever had one of those nights that starts out like any other, but ends up being the best night of your life? I did. Our goal that night was simple. 12 pubs, 12 pints. From the first post to the world's end. But that night... We never made it. That's what the boys did today. Uh-huh. We're going to go back to Newton Haven. Why? Five guys, 12 pubs, 50 pints. 60 pints. <laughs> Steady on, you alkid. This is our chance to finally finish what we started. <laughs> we are going to do the gold mile, and this time we are going to see it through to the bitter end. Or lager end. Good evening, Raymondo. The prodigal son's return. Hi. What do you recommend? Beer. Mmm. One tap water. What? What the hell is this? Why are we even here? We are here to get annihilated. You come back and everything's sort of weird. I suggest you get on your way. It's not us that's changed. It's the town. So Edgar Wright's latest film, The World's End, is still in theaters. It played everywhere as far as i know yeah. it came to tuscaloosa anyway and that usually means everywhere i was sort of a convert to edgar wright not long after Shaun of the dead had sort of blown up and had developed its cult audience mm-hmm. i got it as a present one year for christmas and just popped it in having not seen it it was a blind buy completely and i loved it and it's a movie that i watched just this past weekend again and i've yeah. revisited it over the years and i'm one of those just Shaun of the dead groupies and the same can be said for hot fuzz i know that there are huge fans of that people who prefer that and those were two movies that just completely established edgar wright as one of the best young filmmakers out there somebody who had a distinctive style and presence and he's a guy whose films people look forward to with great anticipation and we did with Scott Pilgrim even though it wasn't part of this Cornetto trilogy as it were or as it's called now anyway but Scott Pilgrim is a movie that blew me away too and still does and is incredible on rewatch and further established him as one of the best in the business and so here we are now he's reunited with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and some of the other folks who have appeared in his films and I won't spoil a lot of who else appears in this movie but you have The World's End which is the culmination of this Cornetto trilogy that we've mentioned and again you team up this duo who were so successful in Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz at not only creating their own brand, but also establishing Edgar Wright and their sort of style, which is just so in your face, but just so fantastic. It's just everything you want movies to be, and they're obviously made by people who are excited about movies. But here we are again, and he skipped a movie to make Scott Pilgrim, and I have to wonder, I know that you're a diehard fan of this guy, Mm -hmm. uh, Edgar Wright, and these guys who made this movie, but I'm just curious, do you think that having gone and made Scott Pilgrim with other people instead of, you know, 
the guys like Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, do you think he missed a beat with this trilogy, or do you think he's sort of back in the swing of things and it's the same old, same old? Does this fit right in with this trilogy as they intended it to? Yeah. 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 It does. And you can certainly tell the influence of Scott Pilgrim in the style of his action scenes in The World's End, of which there are several, though I'll keep that vague, since the genre weirdness doesn't start creeping in until a good way into the film. But does this fit right in there with Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz? Absolutely. And this is only after two viewings versus Shaun of the Dead's five billion and Hot Fuzz's five billion, because I tend to pop those movies on all the time. But after two viewings, I can safely say it's at least as as good as those other movies whether or not it improves and i'm sure it will on repeat viewing as all of his films do as there's plenty to catch in all of them that remains to be seen but will i work it into the regular rotation with all of his other movies yeah absolutely i i had a blast with this and this is another instance where i'm unreservedly head over heels for a movie that's two in one show after you know a summer of feeling really grumpy about pretty much everything and yet here we are two trusted filmmakers who you can always count on to deliver the goods in one way or another have indeed done that for me which i guess i shouldn't be too surprised about you know, I, I feel the same way, and having gone back and revisited his work, this does fit right in, and his leads, again, are fantastic. I think this is arguably Simon Pegg's best performance yeah. in the trilogy. It's just a completely manic and dynamic performance, and this is a guy who's used to playing the straight guy, especially in those first two movies, and for him to get to sort of flex his muscle and sort of go berserk as this character who leads his other four friends on this just pub crawl odyssey that turns into something unexpected. It's great to see Peg just sort of let loose. But what's interesting about these movies is that Edgar Wright just so obviously and deliberately uses these very specific genres to help tell these human stories mm -hmm. and to make these comments. And these movies are satirical in nature. And this one is too. And it says a lot about corporate takeovers in terms of not only these bars that these guys are visiting, but towns in general, people specifically. And I think it has a lot to say. But I actually kind of thought the movie was working really well before the genre stuff kicked it, it, in. It absolutely is working totally fine just with these five guys hanging yeah. out and just getting to know their dynamics and seeing them rehash their old issues so that when the stuff comes in about midway through the film, it's almost as much of an interruption yeah. for us as it is for them. Yeah, it's almost kind of distracting. Right. And I loved the film about the five guys reuniting and the film about nostalgia. Mm -hmm. And you have this incredible opening sequence narrated by Simon Pegg, which is just seen from the one perspective and being told from this just unreal perspective of this guy who is an obvious alcoholic, a guy who we see when the film opens is sitting in the middle of an AA meeting. And I love the way they sort of reveal that yeah. as he's told the story to these people. It's just, it's amazing to me. And I just thought that you had his problems, which I think are enough to carry the movie thematically mm -hmm. and as a story. And then you have, again, yeah, this thing that happens where where you have this sort of sci-fi element. Much, much broader problems. Yeah, that, that creeps up into the movie. And it, it sure, it works, and it's a really fun to watch. And like you said, you have these elements of Scott Pilgrim in his first two movies that work really well from like an action standpoint and just from a broad standpoint. But I think that even though that stuff is really, really fun, I think that they were going somewhere with the first half hour of this. And it, like you said, it gets interrupted. I won't say it got derailed. No. Because it is so much fun. 
But I have to say, I was a little disappointed that they just didn't continue on the path that they were on. The, the marriage between the two portions is a lot clearer on a second viewing. Okay. And you appreciate the setup work that's done in ways that pay off in subtle little ways throughout the rest of the film. And in breaking news, Andrew, our producer, has seen the film that we're talking about, so he has something to say. Yeah, well, I finally actually watched a, a movie that you guys have ta- are talking about on a show this week. <laughs> I couldn't disagree more with almost everything you guys have said. Well, not everything. There's you, a lot of you really dislike good it? It comes in at, at about a eh for me. Oh, Oof. boy. You know, I totally agree that the first 30 minutes or so of the film does not seem to really fit with the rest of it. And thank God the rest of it occurred because that first 30 minutes is not, I don't buy any of the backstory of these guys. I don't, especially Simon Pegg's character who, okay, fine, he's stuck 20 years ago. What has he been doing for 20 years, which they never actually talk about? They talk about this one night that he's stuck in that he keeps reliving and keeps reliving. How has he been reliving in the last 20 years? He's, He's not been in this town. What has he been doing other than being an alcoholic, which is sort of all they really allude to. The way I look at it is, this is a guy who's just relived the memory of it for the past however many years and somebody who can't let it go. You have these instances where they're in the car and he's playing a song and the Patty Considine character says, hey, I made a tape of this song for you uh-huh. however many years ago. He says, this is the tape. This is the actual tape. So where did you find it? In the tape player. Yeah, exactly. I have to give a lot of credit to the action scenes. Like I think for me, that's where it really picked up and I was like, wow, this is like not what I expected from action in this movie. Yet. This is like sort of almost, it's extremely choreographed yeah. and it and it feels almost like there's just like the slightest, slightest hint of wire foo, but not a lot. Like, I mean, just barely there. You know right. what I mean? Like it's on the just a subtle hint of it. And that stuff all works really well for me. You know, a lot of those tropes of the genre that we're not really getting into, those work for me really well. And the characters, I have to say, are all very well acted and for the most part believable except for I think the main character yeah but I uh, again I think Simon Pegg does an excellent amazing job I think it's the script that I have a problem with not necessarily him or his betrayal I think we get a gradual revelation throughout the movie that none of these guys are particularly happy being adults they've got their ordered lives sure but there is a certain attraction however loath they are to admit it to this idea of reliving their glory days I mean you've got Eddie Marsan's character who is married with kids who ignore him still working for his father at a car dealership you've got patty constantine's character sort of lonely as an architect still pining for the object of his affection from years prior martin freeman's character it just seems bloodless glued to a bluetooth headset the whole time as as a realtor and nick Frost's character as as we get as is revealed throughout the film has all sorts of issues from his past and his pent-up anger at his former best friend, Gary King, played by Simon Pegg. But there is a simultaneous attraction with that anger, that all four of these guys who reluctantly and stupidly decide to accompany him can't deny. Yeah, the they, they could use it. Yeah, and, they, I mean, they really could. This sort of chance to let loose is just as appealing to them. Yeah, and Simon Pegg sort of gives them all the same pitch, too. Mm-hmm. Nothing really changes about that, and it seems like he didn't really need to do much to sell them on the idea, either. I don't think they look at it as big of a deal as Simon Pegg does. They think, well, this could be a fun weekend getaway. 
Yeah, exactly. Why it's not, not life changing. You know, I think that this is one of the better reunion movies that yeah. I've seen in a while. And again, that doesn't really speak to necessarily the genre elements that we're talking about, even though those things work. I think in terms of like the genre stuff that Edgar Wright employs in this, it reminded me probably the most of his show Spaced. And uh-huh. I think that this has more of a spaced feeling than anything he's done so far. I would point specifically to that whole nightclub sequence. Yeah, I'd agree with Where that. they're all dancing with these like mermaid characters and you have Patty Considine talking in the back with this old Kajri character who sort of lets them in on some plot details and he's fantastic and he comes back later in the movie and it's just so funny that stuff reminded me of Spaced but from a stylistic standpoint it has everything that the previous movies do and it even shows a little restraint now that he's four movies into this thing this is a guy who came into it just on a tear and if you watch Shaun of the Dead now I mean it's it totally holds up but it just has in the rest of his movies have just those fast edits and just these amazing sequences I think this time it's a little more toned down but again once the sci-fi stuff starts it did distract me a little bit but it really kicks into high gear when this door song starts playing and they sort of realize what's going on and they go with it and they continue their pub crawl right to me, that movie sort of kicked into fifth gear at that point, and it really hit a groove that was so much fun. And I sort of forgot about all of, I guess, the serious stuff that Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg were going for initially, and I just sort of went along for the ride and had some fun. But I think that when they make it to that, what I think is called the smokehouse or whatever, right. and they have that scene where they're sort of trying to figure each other out, and they use elements from the past to do that. There's some really funny moments in that, specifically when they look up and find something carved oh, yeah. in yeah. the ceiling that's hilarious. But I think that that reintroduces a lot of those themes and ideas and does it really effectively and you get enough character moments to realize a pretty compelling story. It's just like the end of Shaun of the Dead as as Shaun's companions are eventually uh, narrowed down by the zombie threat. I mean, you do feel for these characters. You you feel for the characters in Shaun of the Dead and you feel for this group of friends. But as far as being a step up from his other two films visually, the action scenes are pretty much next level in this. I mean, compared to something like Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead. And that's the Scott Pilgrim director talking there. Like you, like you said, Andrew, that they're choreographed. They're immaculately choreographed. You've got so much physical humor and, and things going on in the background and all of these fights scenes and they stay totally clear and often very hilarious pretty I mean, frantic too they yeah. kind of have a jailbreak element to them but it's like organized chaos and don't tell me you don't get a thrill from nick frost dropping the people's elbow on on a dude i mean that was amazing <laughs> yeah what i think is interesting about all three of these movies that they've made is that they're all about people they're not about all of these things that are happening around them they're about the characters and about how they sort out their lives in the face of these things and these problems that they have to solve despite zombies and serial killers and what's happening in this movie. In fact, those things in in those movies, the genre things, aren't major threats to them. It's like if you're on the first level of a video game and it moves so much slower, you just have to make it through the level. As long as you're poised and smart, you can get through it pretty easily, but if you do something stupid, you get killed. You never really feel like they're in danger. No, not at all, but you have to be Well, you never feel like the main character. You know who's not who's not in real danger. Right, exactly. But I, I think that's really interesting about these movies where it's n- it's not necessarily about that. Those are obstacles for them, but if they actually think and put their heads together and realize who they are and who they can and want to be, then they can make it through it pretty easily. And whether or not that happens in this movie, I, you know, I don't know. But I, I think without getting very specific, something that is going to turn a lot of people off about this movie and kind of did me 
the first time I saw it, and I'll go back and watch it, but the more and more I think about it, the more and more I like it, is this epilogue right. in this movie. I mean, no matter where your life is and, and how terrible things have gotten, you can rebuild it. You can become the person you want to be and move forward with your life rather than looking to the past, as so many of the characters in this film do. You know, you can build a, a new life from the ashes of the old life. And how far Simon Pegg's character, Gary King, has actually made it as far as doing that is debatable given what happens in, in the very last scene of this movie and who he's with. But the fact is, it's it's forward momentum. And given that he had been stuck in a cycle wherever he is for almost two decades prior, forward momentum something for that character. I think the epilogue's wonderful. Yeah, it is pretty great. It ends on this extremely bizarre right. moment where I think a lot of people are going to be wondering, am I watching the same movie that I've been watching for the past hour and a half? But it's so funny. What did you think of the epilogue? Did it do it for you? Did it take you out of I it I like the idea of it. That I think that last scene was a little bizarre. I don't feel like the character really moved on. I feel like that was, <laughs> that, that was him getting as close to what he was doing before as he possibly could in this new world world he just wasn't in the same environment but he was still doing the same thing i mean i guess i guess it's not it's not a clean ending necessarily it's one that makes sense for where the character was and and seems in as much as it can be fairly realistic speaking for what that character might do in a situation like that after all that he had been through if i'm looking at all the characters because they recap every sort of what everybody's doing and it seems like the only one who's actually really done something with his life is is the Nick Frost character. Um, I'm forgetting what I'm forgetting uh, character Steven, what he did. But regardless, uh, I feel like that was the one that actually had the best resolution. And everybody else was sort of doing what they were doing before, just in a different way. Well, if you like Edgar Wright's movies, I think you're going to get a lot out of this. I think I need to see it again. Yeah. I also was seeing it with my wife, who was like from the set out. <clears throat> Like, just not having it. And, so you know, sometimes you can pick up vibes from people next to you that you don't necessarily intentionally mean to. And I think that may be a little bit of what happened. If you're a beer connoisseur, too, I think you'll like it a lot. They're thirsty. There are a lot of references. It did. Yeah. It did. Actually, I went home and drank, and drank a beer almost immediately upon yeah. seeing that movie. It makes plenty of references to, like, the tastes and nuances of beer. I think Nick Frost has one of the funniest lines of the movie in the trilogy after... This is a guy who hasn't had a drink in many years, but he unfortunately has to succumb to the temptation and really to Gary's influence. And after he's had a few, he asks the bartender about one of the beers and how it tastes. And it's just one of the funniest yeah, I know what you're talking about. deliveries ever. And his, one of his exits from the bar, too, is amazing. Yes. So Nick Frost is incredible here. And he's a guy who sort of switches places with Simon Pegg. Mm -hmm. Only on the surface, at first, that's the case. You see the real Nick Frost sort of step out of that shell later in the movie. I think Nick Frost is the funniest person in this movie. He I'm not going to say necessarily the best actor or anything, but he is probably the funniest in this movie. He's great, and you're probably right, but I, I did like seeing Simon Pegg become a little unhinged this time around instead of being that straight man like we saw in Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, and we've seen him be funny in stuff like Star Trek, where he is there to be comic relief, but I think that this is a pretty interesting and just very well-rounded performance. We talked about the Jasmine character in Blue Jasmine. I think that this is kind of similarly multidimensional here. He's just such a hectic and frustrating character. He pulled it off, for sure. And I think it's great to see him do a character like that that really is different. Well, the movie is playing nationwide for now. Right now, it's uh, moderately successful, I guess. And it'll be around for, I think, a short while longer. So you better check it out while you can. Definitely do that. You start out with a burning desire, and then you end up the next day with a burning sensation, if you know what I mean. 
Yes, but this one was so irresistible. Sweet and innocent. But under the sheets, tigress. They have violent, screaming, passionate jungle cat. You mean a good actress? No, she swore not. No, you're very young, my friend. Very naive. She dug her nails into my back. I'm sure. And then she yelled, don't stop, don't stop. Yes. And stuck her tongue inside my mouth and wiggled it around. I'm sure it was well worth the $20. 20 Paid her 700 <laughs> Yeah, sure. Tell me another one. I'm afraid you've never made love with a sword swallower. I beg your pardon. So we mosey on back into the world and overall universe of Woody Allen. And Blue Jasmine may or may not come up here, but we're going to talk about our favorite non-Woody Allen characters in Woody Allen movies, meaning characters who weren't played by Woody Allen. I think you could make a top five Woody Allen character played by Woody Allen list on its own. I mean, I think of characters like Mickey and Hannah and her sisters and Kleinman and Shadows and Fog. Those are some of my favorites. You go Zelig and Danny Rose and Alvy Singer. and The list goes on. It sure does. What we're going to do here, instead of just giving you sort of the typical top five Woody Allen characters, or non-Woody Allen characters for that matter, we're going to do a bit of a fantasy draft here and come up with who we would have as our like sort of starting five in the character landscape here. And something tells me that there's so many characters and this is such a vast universe that we might end up with the five that we want each. But if one of us picks one of the characters that the other one has on their list, the other one can no longer pick that character and you just have to move on like it's a draft and they're just gone I don't know if you've experienced a fantasy draft yet last night yeah mine was on Sunday and luckily had the first pick and you know there's Adrian Peterson sitting right there and I get him and he's just gone you can't have him he's mine so that's the case here and Corey I'm going to give you first pick here in the Woody Allen, non-Woody Allen character draft of 2013. This is is a lot of pressure. This is a lot of pressure. It is. Don't get all Sam Bowie on me here. I feel like for the first pick of the 2013 non-Woody Allen character in a Woody Allen film draft, I have to go with the obvious choice. Hi. 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 Oh, hi. Hi. (laughs) Well, bye. (laughs) You... You play very well. Oh, yeah? So do you. Oh, God, what a, what a dumb thing to say, right? I mean, you say it, you play well, and then right away, I have to say you play well. Oh, oh, God, Annie. Well, oh, well. <laughs> la-di-da, la-di-da, la-la, yeah. Diane Keaton's Oscar-winning portrayal of Annie Hall in the film Annie Hall. That's okay. I can live with that. Yeah, I mean that's that's the Adrian Peterson of of the non Woody well, Allen you know, I'm sitting here, Allen film draft. I'm sitting here, and it's like you picked Akeem Olajuwon, and I'm sitting out there, and I'm the Bulls, and I'm like, well, Michael Jordan's still out there, yeah. so I feel pretty good about okay. myself. Right. So that's a good pick, though. Safe pick. Yeah, safe pick. Safe I'm pick. Gonna, I'm not going to lie. I can I can live without it. It's still one of the the better performances in any of his films ever. It's just a complex, uh, wonderful portrayal. But I think the one with the highest draft stock and the most upside here. For my fantasy team, I'm going with Sean Penn from Sweet and Low Down. Yeah, that was my number two. Yeah. I really should have gone ahead and snapped him up. <laughs> well, he's gone now. Yeah, Emmett Ray. Yeah. Wonderful. It, second best jazz guitarist <clears throat> in the world after some gypsy from France. That's right. And, you know, the way you said that, too, and it makes me think about that movie, it almost sounds like the Coen brothers wrote that line that yep. just keeps coming back over and over and over. 
But just an amazing character and an amazing performance. Oscar nominated, maybe Sean Penn's best performance. And I know that's saying a lot for Sean Penn fans out there. The guy's won two Oscars Mm -hmm. and may win more. But I don't don't know. It's kind of like Kate Blanchett in this movie where it's such a brilliant marriage. It just made sense, I guess, on paper. And it was just amazing how it was realized. But you think of these non-Woody Allen male protagonists out there. And I have a short list of my favorites for sure. But you have these cases where you have the Kenneth Branaghs and the Will Ferrells and these guys who are channeling Woody Allen yeah. and his nuances and are trying to act like Woody Allen would act. And in some cases it works. Like I think Brana gives a really funny performance in Celebrity, but in some cases it crashes and burns. And I think Will Ferrell is just a headache in Melinda and Melinda. But Sean Penn as Emmett Ray is just a clinic in how to do it and how to mm-hmm. make a character your own and something that is just so wholly original. And I it's agree. just one of the best movie characters ever. All right, your next pick. For the second pick in the uh, non-Woody Allen characters in a Woody Allen movie draft 2013. I have to go with Martin Landau's portrayal of Judah Rosenthal in Crimes and Misdemeanors, the conflicted anti-hero of one portion of that movie. I think he was Oscar nominated, but I don't think he won. Did he win? No, he didn't win. He famously didn't win one couple years later from Ed Wood. It anchors perhaps Allen's strongest morality story in his filmography and goes to some complex moral gray areas that Landell carries with aplomb. For sure. Yeah. It's amazing. And probably Woody Allen's heaviest movie yeah. overall. Yeah. And he does it with such grace, I think, in this movie where his character might not do it with as much grace, but... It really is amazing, and I think he, he too, set such a high bar for actors in his movies. Somebody who just, in my opinion, sort of attacks Woody Allen's material differently and in a way that we're not used to. Right. And, yeah, that, that's a great pick. My next pick, I'm going back. This is another male actor. This is from the movie Hannah and Her Sisters. This is another Oscar winner. It's Michael Caine as Elliot and Hannah and her sisters. Good pick. Elliot! Hi! Well, what are you doing here? Well, I'm, I'm looking for a bookstore. Oh, in this yeah. section? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm kill- well, yes, I'm killing time. I have a <laughs> client near here, and I, I'm quite early. Oh. How about you? Oh. Well, I live... Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you live near yes, here, don't I you? Do. Where are you headed? Oh, I was just going to my AA meeting. Oh, my God. Why do you still go to those? You never touch alcohol. <laughs> Listen, you didn't know me before, Frederick. I'd, I'd start with a beard about 10 in the morning. Oh, you gone. must have been uh, very unhappy. Yeah, unhappy and fat. <laughs> and I still find the meetings very comforting, you know. I'll never understand it. You're so bright and charming and beautiful. <laughs> God. <laughs> I think to myself, what problems could she possibly have? <laughs> Don't let me get started on my childhood. Oh, you know what? There is a bookstore. Yeah? A couple blocks from here. If you don't know about it, you should. You'd really love it. Yes? Yeah, you would. Well, if, if you have some free time. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Absolutely brilliant Michael Caine performance. What strikes me so much about this is his physical resemblance to Woody Allen in some regards. Uh, Just like the way his, I don't know, his hairstyle and his glasses just sort of suggest this version of Woody Allen, even though Woody Allen's in the movie. But you have this character who's now married to the Hannah character who was previously married to Woody Allen. So she's obviously interested in this type of man for whatever reason. reason. And that to me is uh, Mia Farrow at her most beautiful in that movie. 
movie. I think that she's shot in, in, in a great way, and she, she's really good. But Elliot is one of the most tragic imbeciles to me in Woody Allen's history. The way he falls for his wife's sister, Lee, is played by Barbara Hershey here. It's just, he's so pathetic. He's irredeemable at times in the movie. He has these unfortunate breakthroughs as the movie goes on when it's just obviously too late. But we talk about a movie like Crimes and Misdemeanors in a movie where it's sort of like you live in this godless world in this universe where if somebody doesn't find out about your transgressions, then I guess it's okay and you're going to get away with it. And I think that sort of bleeds into Hannah and her sisters. But Elliot, to me, is just a brilliant character. Yeah. And he's so funny, too. I mean, that movie is heavy, too, but that movie in the end is a comedy. And he has some of its greatest moments in my opinion for my number three ben don't speak don't speak oh man i'm still a star i never play frumps or virgins you're a star because you're great and you are a great star but let me tell you something helen in the last couple of years you're better known as an adulteress and a drunk and i say this in all due respect look i haven't had a drink since new year's eve you're talking chinese new year's naturally still that's two days sid you know how long that is for me Going with Helen Sinclair, yeah. as portrayed by Oscar winner Diane Wiest, Damn. winning her second Best Supporting Actress Oscar uh, in a Woody Allen film. Her first being, of course, from Hannah and Her Sisters, as the flamboyant, overbearing Broadway actress starring in the hapless John Cusack's Broadway play. It's just a towering comedic performance that she really, really hits out of the park. It's amazing. And if you're a fan of Diane Wiest before that, and you've seen her, obviously, and Woody Allen's other movies like Hannah and Her Sisters and you know how she speaks as an actress and as a person even the voice she even creates for Helen Sinclair is out of this world yeah. and I wonder if Woody Allen even expected that out of her when he was making the movie and Jennifer Tilly was also nominated for the mm -hmm. Oscar and Diane Weiss beat her out but Jennifer Tilly is also to me amazing in that movie and it just shows you the strength of it and of his writing and his direction and these actresses specifically but Diane Weiss I mean you, you can't argue with that decision by Oscar voters. It's one of the most just Oscar winners, I think, in recent memory, at least of the 90s. So that's a great pick. And Bullets Over Broadway, for me, just has stood the test of time, even it's up to now. Funny. It's so well written and brilliantly acted. And we may, depending on how this goes, we may refer back to it in the near future. But she was definitely on my list, so you stole her from me, unfortunately. My number three is from a movie that didn't totally do it for you, and we've talked about it before. But again, we talk about actors who bring something different to the table in a Woody Allen movie. Somebody who takes the material and does it in a completely twisted and different way than we're used to. I think there's just this sort of canned Woody Allen performance that we expect from people sometimes. And we sort of hear how they recite the dialogue and the nuances that they try to embellish a little bit. But I think Sidney Pollock in Husbands and Wives, this is a guy whose acting style has always appealed to me, whether it's in this or Eyes Wide Shut or or even Michael Clayton mm -hmm. late in his career before he passed away. This is a guy who made a movie like Tootsie and Out of Africa. Out of Africa. Yeah, so this is a, a guy who's established as a director, and you just honestly, I, even though he had acted before, I, I had no idea that he had these kind of chops. Mm -hmm. And I think that he was perfect for sort of this R-rated streak that Woody Allen went on in the early to mid-90s where you had this and Mighty Aphrodite and Deconstructing Harry, sort of this foul mouth yeah. streak that he took. I think that Sidney Pollock was one of the best guys for the job, and this character, Jack, that he plays in Husbands and Wives is just such a... 
He's such a jerk who just has to have his way at all times. And you can tell that this divorce that he and his wife, played by Judy Davis, go through is his idea so that he could date younger women. He ends up with this aerobics instructor that Woody Allen scrutinizes him for in the movie in one of Woody Allen's funniest, most profane moments, I think, in his career. But I don't know. I think that he lends a certain gravitas that we hadn't been used to in Woody Allen's movies, and it's just interesting to me to see a director act. That's just something that appeals to me generally, but Sidney Pollack, rest in peace. I always thought that he was just a fantastic actor, and it's just a fascinating character to me. Yeah, you're right. I'm not wild about that film, but he is really terrific in it. You're totally spot on there. For my number four, I feel like this might be the steal of the draft in some ways. I'm going to take Kate Blanchett as Jasmine. Oh, okay. From Blue Jasmine. All right. Hit you reasons, that hard. The reasons we articulated uh, earlier, I mean, it's just a tremendous performance in, in a film that I think will age very well in Alan's filmography. Yeah, that's that's a good pick. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to argue. We've already talked about how this stands alongside some of his best movies ever, and I think the performance is just a catalyst for that and it is such a uh, huge part of why that movie is so great, so it's hard to argue that. Yeah. But it's also sort of hard to believe that we're already at that point with a movie that was just released and that we've just seen, but it feels right. It does. It totally feels right. So, good pick. I'm not going to argue that. But I won't say that it was on my list just because there's so much. There's so much out there. And I'm on my number four at this point. And, God, this is really hard. But, see, now, you you made it hard for me because Diane Weist was my lone female, my lone Uh actress on my list. I'm going to come across as just a total misogynist here. (laughs) And I've been harping on and on about how women have stuck out in his movies and he's written so many great female roles. But I'm going to be that guy and I'm going to have to leave the women out, even though I will say I just rewatched Radio Days and Hannah and Her Sisters is one of my favorite movies. So on any other day, Diane Weiss would be on my list. And I'm saying it now, Woody Allen, because I know you're listening. Recast <laughs> Diane Weiss in a movie today. Work with her again. We know she can still act. She was in Rabbit Hole, a movie that you liked yeah, a lot. She's, great. she still got it. She won two Oscars in your movies. Work with her again, please. That being said... I'm going to go with, oh, this is tough, God, because I'm just staring straight at these. I'm going to go with another one that didn't really do it for you, and this is from Cassandra's Dream, and this is Colin Farrell's character, Hmm. one of the Blaine brothers, again, played by Colin Farrell and his movie brother, Ewan McGregor, in what I think is one of his best movies in years. I really do. I think Blue Jasmine, it may or may not have surpassed Cassandra's Dream for me, but I would put Cassandra's Dream ahead of the match points and the Midnight in Paris's, having just rewatched it, too. Colin Farrell, to me, is a guy who gets lampooned and has become sort of a punchline in that he's a guy sort of early in his career that would just be in anything, and he would just turn up in all these sort of like B-movie roles and would be the guy whose name would get floated if there was like a big casting move that was out there. And he wasn't really known for his acting until sort of later in his career. He was in movies like In Bruges, and people praised Phone Booth when that came out. But for me, his best performance up to date is Cassandra's Dream Mm. as this person who can't live with not only the idea of committing murder for money, but once he has sort of crossed the line and committed a crime, he can't live with it after that either. And it's something that just troubles this character, keeps him up at night, forces him to drink and do drugs, and the guilt that he has to live with as opposed to the lack of guilt that his brother lives with is just it's an amazing contrast and i think that 
Colin Farrell gets it. He, again, is one of these guys that brings his own thing to Woody Allen's writing, and it just flows in and out of him better than, uh, I think, most people. And he delivers some of Woody Allen's best dialogue ever in Cassandra's Dream. And I, hats off to him, and that's just a great character. Terry Blaine, I think is his name. I don't want to tell myself anything. What? We broke God's law. I thought about suicide, ain't I can help you if you'll just let me. I just want to tell someone. Called the police last night. You did what? I called them and I told them I had information on the murder of Martin Burns. They said, who is it? I wanted to tell them who I was, but I didn't. Hang up. I'm going to call them as soon as I get back in. Well, maybe one day I'll revisit that. God, I wish you would, Corey. We'll see. All right, so this is the fifth and final choice of this draft. So uh, I'm, I'm treating this as, as sort of um, a scene-stealing supporting character, sort of like the kicker of this draft. I have my uh, heavy hitters already, and I think that you might have this person on your list too, but I'm going to go ahead and take him from you. Okay. From Midnight in Paris, Ernest Hemingway. Oh, he was. Corey he was Stone. on my list. He was. Uh, is, Bastard. Is the... Um, <laughs> It's the scene stiller of that movie and one of the funniest parts of a very, very funny movie. His portrayal of Hemingway not only gets to the core of, of sort of that author's public persona in very funny ways, it manages to somehow be or feel like a complete character in very few scenes with very little screen time. And Corey Stoll is just tremendously funny in that role. Incredible. You're exactly right. It's amazing, too, how many recent performances and characters have found their way onto these lists. So it just shows you how sharp Woody Allen still is. Absolutely. So unfortunately, yeah, that, that's true. You did steal one from me. But I do have backups here, Corey. I have reserves, and I feel very confident here. And again, I'm going with another male character and this is from another one of his movies that is not talked about enough in my opinion i've mentioned it before and this is from 1991 shadows and fog which is just full of interesting characters yeah, to it's me. a good movie it's so good and this is not john malkovich the clown it's not woody allen again obviously we can't use him but the kleinman character mia farrow is also in this movie and you have these characters like jodie foster i think kathy bates and Maybe Lily Tomlin is in this movie, too, when they go to this bordello. Isn't Madonna in it? Yeah, she, she yeah. is. But it is from the bordello scene, and it's John Cusack. Yeah. He plays this student who wanders into this bordello where all these women are, and they obviously know who he is. He's a, he's a frequent customer, mm -hmm. and he's somebody who ends up convincing the Mia Farrow character who has wandered into the same bordello and uh, sought shelter there and they've accepted her and she is not a prostitute but he convinces her to sleep with him for a certain amount of money because she's somebody who needs money in her life and who has left her husband and is, and is sort of on the road but I, I just think that the way he convinces her is just it's it's done with such passion and conviction and when he turns up again later in the movie when he's at a bar mm -hmm. and he shares a scene with John Malkovich and he describes the night that he shared with who is John Malkovich's wife. It's just amazing. It's brilliant writing on the part of Woody Allen, but John Cusack is one of those guys who unexpectedly is 
able to handle Woody Allen's dialogue breathlessly. And he did it in this, and I was tempted to put him on the list for Bullets Over Broadway, too, because I think he's one of the best protagonists in Woody Allen movie where he didn't act. Yeah. So I, I would encourage people, if they haven't seen it, to see it, and if they sort of wrote it off to revisit Shadows and Fog. It is very good, and it is very underrated, I think, on his, among his canon. So that's it. I feel pretty strong about my team here. I'm, I'm pretty satisfied, too. Yours is pretty strong, too. I do want to th- give a shout-out to some of these folks who uh-huh. I did leave off. Off. obviously Diane Weist I, I hate to leave her off my list and it could be for any of those movies that she's in I've also got Tony Roberts who is fantastic in all his movies but I think his strongest character is probably from a Midsummer Night sex comedy mm-hmm. I've got again Corey Stoll I've got Max von Sydow from Hannah and Her Sisters I was tempted to grab him and also from Bullets Over Broadway this is one of the best small performances Jim Broadbent yeah he's really funny is amazing. He's really funny. In He's that. this actor, this Broadway actor who has a bit of a weight problem. He inflates throughout the course <laughs> of the movie. In an eating disorder. Yeah. And I feel like it might be the last time we see him, but he's in this restaurant eating pretty much everything on the menu. Yeah. And it's just Jim Broadbent, like, the guy's talented and he's won an Oscar and everybody knows that the, the man can act. But I think that this is one that flew under the radar for people mm-hmm. and they would go back and say, hey, that's Jim Broadbent. And this is another scenario where it's like i wish they'd work together again yeah any extras for you yeah i have two eve is played by oscar nominee geraldine page in interiors i see fragile neurotic horribly controlling mother at the center of this very icy drama actually woody allen's first drama still one of my favorite movies of his even though it's sort of Regarded, I think, as a lesser experiment until he really worked out all the kinks of the sort of Bergman-esque thing that he worked with. And from everything you always wanted to know about sex, Gene Wilder's character, um, (laughs) Dr. Ross, who falls in love with the sheep. In only that way that Gene Wilder can. Yeah. It's hysterically funny. But yeah, those are all great picks. And we're going to hear from some of our friends and who contribute to the show. Often the filmnerds.com contributors are going to share their favorite Woody Allen characters as well. Hey guys, this is Matt Scalisi from filmnerds.com with my top five performances from a Woody Allen movie. This was a tough list for me to make, so I kind of had to narrow it down to a few. And, and I may throw in a couple of honorable mentions at the end here. My number five is Michael Kane as a prototypical narcissistic male lead in Hannah and Her Sisters. Number four is Diane Weist as an absurdly dramatic theater dame from Bullets Over Broadway. Number three is Kate Blanchett in Woody Allen's most recent movie as a guilt-wrapped woman of means living in denial in Blue Jasmine. Number two, Martin Landau as an anti-hero trying to have it all by abandoning morality in Crimes and Misdemeanors. And my number one, I think I'm probably stealing it from a couple of other film nerds, but it's hard to go against it. Sean Penn as the uh, hopelessly self-destructive musical genius in Sweet and Lowdown. A couple more that I have to mention that didn't make it in the top five. Lane Stritch in September is one of the most fascinating performances in a Woody Allen movie. It sort of straddles that line between being a comedic and dramatic performance. Really great. And then Tracy Ullman in Small Time Crooks. That movie in general doesn't get a ton of love, but it's one of my personal favorites, and I love Tracy Ullman in it. I think she's so funny. So those are my favorites. I'm anxious to hear this podcast so I can hear what everybody else's list sounds like. For film nerds and Aspect Radio, this is Graham Flanagan. I'm going to give you my top five favorite Woody Allen characters, and these are characters from Woody Allen movies that weren't played by Woody Allen himself. 
And along with each character, I'm going to give you one of my favorite lines that you hear each character say in their respective movies. Number five, Jeremiah from Manhattan, played by Wallace Shawn. I'm in town for a few days. There's a symposium on semantics. Dolores Paley from Crimes and Misdemeanors, played by Angelica Houston. I'm going to speak to Miriam. Maxwell from a Midsummer Night sex comedy, played by Tony Roberts. Come in next Tuesday at 3. I'd like to take one more look. For this next one, I'm not going to do a line that the character says, but one that's said about the character. Number two is Sam from Husbands and Wives, played by Lisette Anthony. She could be in the Olympics. And number one, obviously, Emmett Ray from Sweet and Lowdown, played by Sean Penn. These are the kid gloves I really wanted. For Film Nerds and Aspect Radio, this is Graham Flanagan in New York. That pretty much does it for us, Corey. Movies that are opening this week. I know that we had a awful week last week with this release of not only a One Direction movie, but you had this Ethan Hawke, John Voight, and Selena, Selena Gomez, Gomez thing. And you know, when when I was seeing the trailers for this movie Getaway that came out, I didn't even think about the Peck and Paw movie or the remake from the nineties. I didn't even think about those movies. So good lord, it looked bad though. This is actually called Lee Daniels Getaway. <laughs> Not just to, to confuse just to it. Cut back on any confusion. Though I will say, in fairly wide release last week, uh, Wong Kar Wai's new movie, The Grandmaster, opened. It's playing in Birmingham. I haven't seen it yet. I'm hoping to catch it this week. But as far as new wide releases this week, it's only Riddick. Ugh. Yeah. Who wanted a third Riddick? Movie? I mean, I kind of am interested in it. Oh, uh, don't you like the Riddick stuff? No, I like Pitch Black. I don't like the Chronicles of Riddick. But I'll, I'll see this one because it looks more like a <laughs> B movie return to Pitch Black sort of creature horror stuff. I don't know. I mean, it could be fun. You never know. My dad, he hasn't seen these movies, but he often just like, he never, he's like an elephant who never forgets certain things Mm -hmm. about like marketing or lines in movies and they just stay burned in his brain and he says them forever. And there's a line from the Chronicles of Riddick trailer that he's kept over the years and it's just this moment in the trailer where they're all looking up to Riddick and they're waiting for him to say this thing and he sort of turns away from people and says, I've made my choice. So whenever he's like (laughs) decided what he wants to eat or something like that, he quotes the Chronicles of Riddick and says, I've made my choice. So that's my only decent connection to Riddick I can think of. Other don't, than don't bother with the movie. I saw Pitch Black in the theater, and I wasn't crazy about it. Maybe I, I should revisit I it. I like Pitch Black. It's, it's you know an alien knockoff, but it's a fun one. This Salinger documentary is now sort of out and about. I think yeah. it played in Telluride, and people are talking about it. Do you have any interest in it? I do have some interest in it. I, I don't know when it will open around here. You're an English teacher, after all. Yeah. So I, I have quite a bit of interest in it. I'll see it when I can. And allegedly, movies like The Spectacular Now will be expanding throughout September. Hopefully that comes around here. I saw that, again, at the Nashville Film Festival, and it's wonderful. So when you can see it, I, I hope that you have a chance to. Definitely. And on DVD, you had mentioned some the last time, but finally available to me is this movie Oblivion, yeah, starring Tom Cruise, that I know some friends of ours really liked. You said it's worth a watch. I guess, yeah. And I also have this, just because it was free to me, I got this magician heist 
movie. Now, now you, you see, see me. me. Yeah. That movie's so bad. Yeah, I'm expecting that, but it was free, and I want to know why it made as much money as it did, and I want to know why we're getting a sequel to it. More importantly, on DVD, as of today, is my favorite movie of the year so far. The Blue Jasmine might be some competition to it. Sarah Polly's wonderful memoir documentary, Stories We Tell, might be kind of hard to find, and it's only released on DVD. No Blu-ray release for this, which is annoying, but if you'd rather see that on the big screen, of course, that is playing September 10th at the Bam Art house film series also rob zombies uneven but sporadically interesting supernatural horror film the lords of salem which i was able to catch in nashville not as part of the festival just for fun and he's sort of channeling polanski and ken russell and kubrick and and more of the psychological masters of horror than something as frenetic and ridiculous as his halloween remakes or, or house of a thousand corpses that being said he is still rob zombie so he does have a tendency to go too far over the top but when it's working in a nice low key it's actually pretty effective so just don't expect too much and expect it to be uneven and i think that's worth seeing for horror <laughs> lowered expectations yeah okay well that's fair well check us out on aspectradio.com find us at twitter.com slash aspect radio or facebook.com slash aspect radio we're on itunes so find us with a quick search or click the link on our blog be sure to visit our friend matt scalici's website filmnerds.com where you will find a new podcast featuring the filmnerds.com collaborators matt scalici ben stark craig hamilton my brother graham flanagan and myself talking for a good hour or so about john frankenheimer's 1962 film i think birdman of alcatraz oh really yeah so we all decided to watch that that was my pick to watch and it came from a recommendation my dad gave me for years and it's one that i had probably ignored for about 20 years right. and most of my life and i finally gave myself a reason to watch it so people check it out it's just pretty interesting so we're going to have a couple of parting shots here, I think, from our friends at FilmNerds.com. This is Graham Flanagan in New York for Film Nerds and Aspect Radio. What does Fifty Shades of Grey have to do with Pacific Rim? Before you come up with the corresponding dirty joke, Craig, consider this. This weekend, Universal Pictures announced the lead roles in its upcoming film adaptation of Fifty Shades of Grey have been cast. Dakota Johnson will play the female lead. Apparently, she's the daughter of Melanie Griffith and Don Johnson. Don't really know what to say about that except for have fun at the premiere, Don. The male lead will be played by Charlie Hunnam, who many people know from his role on the FX biker show Sons of Anarchy. Many other people know Hunnam from his role in this summer's giant fighting robots epic Pacific Rim, one of my favorite films of the year. Many fans of the film, myself included, have expressed concern that the movie's lackluster domestic box office take could prevent it from getting a much-deserved sequel. Hunnam's casting in Fifty Shades of Grey should be the final push the Pacific Rim franchise needs towards getting the go-ahead for a sequel. Assuming Fifty Shades can avoid becoming a laughing stock in the vein of sex dramas like Showgirls and Jade, its success should catapult Hunnam to international fame, just around the time Legendary Pictures would need to drum up publicity for Pacific Rim 2. I'm sure a lot of Pacific Rim fans thoughtlessly glanced over the Fifty Shades casting news, but they should appreciate the fact that it could push them one step closer to the next showdown between the Jaegers and the Kaiju. And thanks, as always, to our producer, Andrew Richardson, who finally saw a movie that we've seen here and contributed Hooray. to our, the World's End discussion, so we appreciate the input, Andrew, and for the work that you do. And until next week, from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, I'm Ben Flanagan. I'm Corey Kraft. Thanks for listening. You ought to be in pictures. Gee, you're beautiful to see. Say you ought to be in pictures. Oh, what a hit you would be. Your voice would thrill the nation. Your looks would be adored. You'd be a big sensation. With wealth and fame, your reward. 
And if you should kiss the way we kiss when we...